If you haven't, uh, if you're visiting with us today, haven't been here with us, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John and starting with where we are at this moment in John chapter, the end of 11 and beginning of 12, is Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, it says that Jesus resolutely set His face for Jerusalem. And we'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. But at this point in the Gospel of John, we are now, uh, everything, everything up to this has been His entire earthly ministry. And then from this point on, it is the last week of Jesus' life. We refer to that a lot of times uh, as Passion Week. And so all these next chapters, nearly half the book deals with that last week. It's kind of like Mark that way. Lots of attention paid to the final events before the cross and before the resurrection. So I actually want us to pause for a second in this series and, and kind of get a picture of just exactly where we are in the greater story before we go on to the importance of this last week and everything that happens from 12 on. So we left off last week with Lazarus being raised from the dead, with the struggle that Martha and Mary and, of course, others too had with the delay that Jesus uh, intentionally, it seems, had in getting to them so that Lazarus would actually be raised from the dead. Now, you would think, you would think, I think most of us would think, uh, that if Jesus has come and has raised your brother from the dead, now they're happy about it, you would think that all of the onlookers, I, I think it's a fair assumption that anybody that hears the story of, of your brother being raised from the dead and given back to you after days in the tomb, that the response you're going to get is, wow, that's cool. I am so happy for you. I can't believe that. That is just crazy. They may have their minds blown. They, there may be some questions of doubt. But in the end, what they're going to be for you is happy. Okay? You have gotten your brother back. But live with humans long enough, and all of us have, I think, and you find out there are people who, who just for some reason or another find happiness to be just absolutely difficult. Okay? I mean... They eat bacon and it's like they ate lemon. You know what I'm saying? They just baptized in vinegar is what some people used to say. Just ornery, right? We know all about that. I don't know about ornery, but some of you know about ornery. Yeah, 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 right. Verse, in chapter 11, we find some folks that are like that. In verse 45, let's start there. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did had the response we would expect. They put their faith in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's always a tattletale in every story, right? Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, that's an interesting response just right there. But that's what they do. They call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees together, kind of a ruling council to settle matters of religious dispute and legal issues and all that kind of stuff. So, in a way, one might argue they're doing their job. They're supposed to examine these things. I think we see very quickly that's not really what they were called together to do. Verse uh, 47, the last half. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. Notice they don't deny them. They don't deny they were miraculous. He's done it. That should be, they should be listening to that, right? But instead, it hacks them off a little bit. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And now we're getting to the crux of the matter, right? 
When they saw what Jesus could do, they didn't just see that He was something more than a man. Because you know, our questions are always, when we see these miracles, what could man do? What did Jesus do? And who does that make Jesus? They didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as, what did Jesus do and what kind of problem is it going to cause for me now? Now that we might have asked. At times in our life, what in the world is Jesus up to? I don't like that a bit. And this is the way they were. So they call together and they say, listen, he's doing a lot of these things. They seem to be real. People are following him. And that's going to be a problem because I might lose my job. Isn't it funny how selfish we become in a moment that should have been a moment of worship and of praise for what God did in his son, Jesus Christ? This is where they were. This was, this was their spiritual spot. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, this is an interesting spot here. He says to them, if one guy has to die for us to have the peace that we want, then I say it's fine that he dies. Is that what you would expect from your religious leader? That's what they got. If he has to die that we can get the blessings of God, then he has to die. Now, we learn further in the text, up next, that he had actually had a vision from God that indeed this one man would have to die for the good of the nation. But look at the different motivations. We know Jesus died for the good of the nation of Israel and of all mankind. But that's not exactly the twist Caiaphas put on it, is it? What God meant was He will die for the salvation of Israel and of the whole world. And what Caiaphas heard was, He will die and my life will be better. Crazy how we can twist things. This is what was going on. And so they start to plot among themselves how they might be able to take his life. That's verse 53. So that from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where he was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Then we come to chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and we'll, we'll pick that up uh, next week. As he approaches Bethany, he's really approaching Jerusalem. This was a city just a few miles outside of Jerusalem where his friends lived, where he could find rest and respite, as we talked about last week. It would become a place he would withdraw to while he had these constant ongoing battles every day of the last week with the chiefs, priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. All of it an effort by Satan himself to block the Son of God from his mission. Of course, Satan misunderstood the mission, but he throws up everything he's got at Jesus to try and thwart what he's up to. So in this moment, Jesus is getting closer to a moment he knows is going to be difficult, but he does it anyway. What I want to look at this morning as quickly as we can is what brought him to this moment. The disciples asked him before he went to go and raise Lazarus, we looked at it last week, They asked him, why would you go to Jerusalem if you know? Why would you even go to Judea if you know that they are trying to kill you? It's dangerous. They're plotting. Why on earth 
would you do it? And Jesus kept telling them, listen, long as the sun's up, I'm doing the work of God. We are going. There is a, a story here that needs to be written and completed, and it's happening. But they keep asking, why, why are we going? This seems foolhardy to go into basically right into the lion's den, so to speak. Why would we do that? The why starts all the way back at the beginning. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light and it was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. God, God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And he goes on with creation. He creates the expanses. He creates the seas. He creates the mountains. He creates everything that lives and breathes and moves and plants and all these things as he goes through those six days of creation. And then at the end of that, he says, let us then go down and make man in our image. That's always been interesting language to me. And I've always wondered, the first person who ever read Genesis, did they, did they stop and go, what's it mean, us? What's this us? We believe in one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, they would say every day. What is this us? You learn as you go along. It's because there's an us, isn't there? Let us go down and make man in our image. And so God does. He takes the dirt of the ground and He forms Adam and He breathes into Adam the breath of life. And He gives Adam dominion over all of the animals and gives him a task of naming and all of these things. But Adam is pretty lonely. And God says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. To which all the men said, Amen. Right? And so it's not good for man to be alone. And so He, he causes Adam to go to sleep. And He takes from Adam his rib, his side, and He forms Eve. And Adam wakes up and he sees Eve. And he goes, Amen. Right? Again, he was a religious man. <laughs> Or he just said, "Woo! Look at that." You know, depends. And uh, and he creates Eve to be one with Adam, to to be with Adam and to serve alongside Adam. And Adam and Eve are placed in this garden, the Garden of Eden, where and you know, for those of you, I, I don't have a green thumb. I don't kill everything that I plant, but I, I, no master gardener here. Some of you are very talented in this regard, and you know. People can have incredible gardens and incredible yards and go to places uh, that, that just the vegetation is absolutely incredible. And yet I think, I don't know, but I think it all has to pale in a way compared to the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of Eden was quickly compromised. We find in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve is out one day and she comes across the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God had only given them a few rules. Have babies and don't eat off of that tree. I think most of us think we could probably handle that rule pretty well, right? And, you know, a lot of people traditionally think, I don't think we know, I don't think we're supposed to know, I don't think it matters. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll picture an apple on this thing. I'm starting to think that maybe at one time bacon did grow on trees. Why else did she look at that tree and go, uh, I don't know? It caused the entire history of mankind to go to pot, but it's bacon, you know? Who knows? Maybe that's why it was considered unclean. You ever seen a dirty wild pig? You know why it's considered unclean. Anyway, the serpent tempts Eve. That picture is driving my wife nuts. I can feel it. She doesn't like that sort of thing. This serpent tempts Eve 
with all kinds of undermining questions. Well, now, he didn't really say you were going to die, did he? I mean, really what's going to happen, it's a tree of knowledge. You're just going to get to a point where you know everything God knows. You're going to be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you know that He created you to be in His likeness, but not quite Him? I guess He's insecure like that, so He left a few things out. And just starts undermining God's commands in her mind, in her heart, till finally Eve takes a bite. Then Adam shows up. Don't know how far back he was, but Adam shows up. And Adam should have known better too. And Eve says, hey, try this. This is pretty good. Ellen has a joke about how, you know, anything that, that's terrible, you know, we always want to give to the person who's sitting next to us. You eat something, you go, oh, that's awful. Try that. Isn't that a weird thing we do? You know, so she takes a bite and goes, oh, wow, I, that just completely ruined all of mankind's history forever. Here, take a bite. You know, that sort of thing. Why would we do that? But Adam is just kind of in this moment, not his best moment, like every guy, we had these. This is his <laughs> moment. And he's like, sure, let me have some. And so he, he takes a bite of the fruit. They both come to the realization that everything that they were not supposed to do, they've just done. Because they didn't have a long list. Even with just one thing, mankind, boy, we've got our problems, right? They realize for the first time in their life. You know, we always focus on the, they realize that they are naked. The real realization was that because of what they'd done, there was shame. Because of what they had done, there was guilt. And in their shame and in their guilt, they go hide in the bushes. And God, who normally had walked with them in the cool of the evening, there's a mind-blowing thought for a second. What's that like? We'll find out. Comes looking for them. Adam, Eve, where are you hiding? They're like, mm-hmm. But they're hiding from God. So, you know, hide and seek with God. You're never going to win. Okay? Just doesn't work. And so he finds them. Adam immediately blames Eve, right? Guys, we shouldn't do that. But this happens, right? Well, you gave me this woman. This woman gave me food. and I, Your fault, you know. Tries to blame it on God and Eve because this is what we do, shift blame. Long story short, God makes a promise in all this. He tells them what their consequences be, will be. They're going to be banished from the garden and he places an angel with a fiery sword so that they can't get in. The paradise they had known is gone. The consequence of hard work and labor out in the sun is now the reality of mankind and still is. Hey, we're in Texas. We know about it, right? So all of these things changed the course of human history forever. But this did too. He says, this is verse 10 of Genesis chapter 3. Adam, he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Woman, you put here here with me. Excuse me, I'm got turned around. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you've done? You know what you've done. And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this. I want you to notice something for a second. Who does God rebuke? First, I think it's important. I don't think it's without cause. He could have laid into Eve first. She bit first. He could have laid into Adam. He had a responsibility to have, to have taught Eve better than that. I mean, he was there when the command was given. Eve wasn't yet. And yet first he lays into Satan. And there's a, a reason we're supposed to understand that. 
The consequence comes first to the, to the person who was most responsible for this fall. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your lives. And you, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, he the offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He gives this prophecy, the Lord does, to the serpent and says, Buddy, your days are numbered. And you may fight back all you want, but in the end, all you will have ever done to my offspring and to her offspring is to have struck their heel. There's going to be one who will crush your head. And from that moment on, as from generation to generation for thousands of years, men and women looked forward to the day when one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, who caused the fall of mankind, who causes every interaction you have that is ungodly, who caused every hurt you ever had that is ungodly, who caused every death that has ever been that was ungodly. There will be one who will right all wrongs. And not only right all wrongs, but bring an end to the one who keeps fiddling and causing them, the accuser that is Satan. That promise has been handed down from generation to generation as a promise of hope that things may be difficult now, but it gets better. We say it sometimes about the resurrection. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's going to get better. The story goes on, and we don't have time for all of it, but the story goes on. They are kicked out. They have kids. The first two sons they have, Cain and Abel, what happens? Cain gets jealous of Abel, kills him, and we have the first murder. And so humanity doesn't look like it's off to a very good start. You know, however long it was before the fall, before the serpent spoke up, we don't know. But you don't get the impression that it was all that long. They hadn't had a baby yet. So what, less than nine months? Now here they are outside the garden, outside the fellowship that they had known that was so close and so perfect. And now their kids are killing each other. Time goes on till you come to Noah. A time in Genesis 6 that says, God looked out on mankind and saw that all of the thoughts of mankind were only evil all the time. And we think it's bad now. Think about this. Only evil all the time. I mean, even some of the most obnoxious people we know have some good thoughts every now and then, right? They do some good things here and there. They have their redeeming qualities. Not so in Noah's day. In fact, when God looks out, He finds Noah. That's the long list of great people. Noah. Noah's got some kids and he gets, recruits his kids and they build an ark. They invite everybody they can onto this ark because God has said, I am so tired of this, I'm just going to run the rinse cycle all over this thing and we're going to start all over again. So he does, but no one joins him except his own family on that boat. They get off the boat when the waters recede, start rebuilding civilization, go through lots of bumps, the Tower of Babel and all of that stuff, which was an attempt for them to try and outbuild God. God thwarted that for their own good. Until finally, we start with this story of Abraham. God comes to a man. He wasn't Abraham yet. He was Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And he makes some promises to him. He promises him that he will have children that will be numbered as much as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And of course, Abram and his wife Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah, hear this promise and they think it's nuts. Okay? They just think that's the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard, especially Sarah. She's sitting there going, Really? I've been on Social Security for 30 years and you expect me to have... How many of you would, would, would 
not laugh a little bit too if God came to you in your 80s and said, you know what, how about a baby? No. You know, my wife's nowhere near that. I ain't telling her age. I ain't stupid, right? So, but, but my wife looks at me and goes, don't you even think about it. That's not happening. No more children. Okay? I, I keep trying. I want to have twin boys named Thurber and Mingus like the road sign on I-20. And she keeps telling me no. But I have a deal with her. When, the, when, when she got pregnant with Emma, I said, before we knew, I said, if this is twin boys, can we? And she said, yes, I'm holding her to it. So you know what I'm saying. I may have to get dachshunds. The, <laughs> the, the, ooh, Thurber Mingus. Anyway, he promises that he's going to have descendants, numerous. And that sounds crazy, but Abram is a man who actually believes in God. He says, well, it doesn't make sense to me, but you know what? Let's just stand back and watch. Later, as the story goes on, he says, not only are you going to have all these descendants, but I am going to give your descendants a land and a nation. You're going to be a real country. To a guy who's just a wandering sheep farmer, that must sound incredible. I mean, we all want our kids to be better off than we were, right? We want them to be established and, and to have a good home and a good place. And he says, your kids aren't going to have to wander around. Your descendants are going to actually be a country. That would be kind of wild if God said that to you, wouldn't it? Your kids are going to be a nation, and it's, I'm going to hold that nation up as an example to the world of the way things ought to be. He looks forward to this promise. Lots of bumps along the way. The whole story of, of uh, Isaac, and then later on with Jacob and Esau and all of his descendants. And for a while, it doesn't look at all like it's going to happen. But there's one thing that holds them to their promise. The third promise was not just that there will be people and descendants, not just that those descendants will be a nation, but that through that people, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So they keep looking forward. There's going to be a day when God blesses the whole world through my kids, through my descendants, and through that nation. It looks pretty dark again for a while because they end up, after a long, long time, hundreds of years, the descendants are indeed as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore, but they're slaves. Not a nation. Not a people that are, are living under their own rule, under the rule of God. But they're slaves in Egypt. Until one day, a guy with a really strange childhood, raised by a mom who found him floating down a river. How about that story? A guy named Moses, who, because he's a fugitive, is tending sheep out on a hillside, wanders up, to what he can't figure out. There's a bush that's burning. And this burning bush is really odd because, I mean, it's not unusual to see a, a dead bush burn, right? Except that this isn't a dead bush. This is a live bush. And what intrigues him is that the leaves are still green and they're not even burning up. And that's just not the way physics works, is it? And so he wonders about this and it, the, the curiosity of it pulls him in. And as he approaches, he hears a voice. Hey, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Now, that would be odd, okay? That's, that's, I don't know. that. I think if I'm wandering around out in the middle of a pasture, I see a burning bush. Well, I live in Texas. The first thing you do is call 911, right? You've got to get some help because it's going to get real big real fast. But if I, if I see this thing, I walk up to it and it talks to me. I don't, know, I don't even know who I call for that. But I'll tell you what I do. I leave. <laughs> I'm not getting anywhere near a talking bush. But here you go. This bush starts talking to him. And it calls him to a purpose. He finds out in the course of the conversation that this is God speaking. 
And God wants him to go back to Egypt. Remember, he's a fugitive from Egypt because he murdered a man. He wants him to go back to Egypt and to lead God's people into freedom so that the promise will be kept, that they will have a land and that they will be a nation. And Moses says, I think you need to get somebody else. I don't think I'm the guy for this job. God says, I've chosen you. He says, okay, but then they're going to have objections. They're going to say, well, why should we listen to you? He says, you just tell them that I am sent me, and that'll be good enough. He scares him with a stick, turns him into a snake, sends him off. Moses agrees to go. He goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Isn't that a great line? Let my people go. To which Pharaoh says, I don't think so. You had the ten plagues, and through all ten plagues, Pharaoh says, nice trick, but no, out. Moses keeps going back and keeps going back, showing the power and the authority of God. Taking down, by the way, as we talked about idols earlier, each one of those plagues takes down another idol of the Egyptians, showing it to be empty and false. Until finally, it hits too close to home, and Pharaoh, mourning the loss of his son, lets them go. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. They're scared to death. After all these hundreds of years, they had thought God was keeping His promise. But as they face the waters in one side and Egyptian chariots rumbling down the hill behind them on the other, they get scared. Moses, this is all a bad trick. God has led us out here not to make us a nation, not to bless the world through us, but to kill us. This is all a bad trap. And then God shows His power once again. And He parts the seas. And the ground dries. And the people of Israel step out between the waters and cross. And as they get to the other side, Pharaoh's army comes roaring into the the waters on the dry ground and then they watch as the waters collapse in and destroy the only ones Satan really had sent to stop them. See, one of the common threads that's been coming all along through this story so far is that there is one who constantly wants to divide God and man, to drive a wedge between them and to to divide and drive a wedge between mankind and mankind as well. And here we go again. Every single time there is an attack by Satan, God delivers. They go on. They come across all kinds of problems. Not Not the least among them was their own shakiness in their belief. And in Numbers 13 and 14, they tell God, there's no way that you're going to be able to lead us into a land. Even though they'd seen all of that, even though He'd led them by that that point across the desert by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He'd fed them. He'd caused their shoes not to wear out. He'd protected them. All of these things, they get scared. They say, we don't think God's going to keep His promise to give us this land. We would have been better off just staying slaves. At least there we got cucumbers and fish. They forgot already that those cucumbers and fish came with a whip at their back. Nostalgia does that. God leads them. Despite their unbelief, the unbelievers didn't enter the land, but despite their unbelief, their descendants did. God guides them through a series of battles as they go in and they take the land of Canaan. He gives them victory after victory, and every time it looked like they were just about to lose, God delivers them once again, and they were able to go on in. And He does it in ways that are crazy to us. Things like Moses having to have his hands held up. If his hands came down, they started to lose. It's crazy stuff, right? But... They, they hold his hands up and they start to win. You know, it's like the Cowboys. Okay, Every time Jerry gets a facelift, they win. Every time it starts to droop again, they go down. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, it, stuff that could be. We should watch. Maybe that's been the, the pattern and we just missed it. But all of these things, God keeps delivering them over and over again. 
Because there's one other thread that keeps running through. This God seems to be keeping His promises even at the moments where He thought where we thought that he wouldn't, couldn't, and had given up. They go into the land. They inhabit the land. They are a nation. They are a people. Eventually, they beg for a king. And God gives them first Saul. That didn't work out real well. But then they give him a king named David. And some of them thought, man, this might be the deliverer that, that he's always talked about. No, but he was a man after God's own heart. And God makes a, and grows the promise once again and says, I'm going to get more specific about who it is that's coming to crush the head of Satan, who will right all of the wrongs and restore you to Eden. He will be one who will come from the line of David. So pay close attention to the people who come after him. And king after king, they look at and go, well, that sure isn't him. They were messed up. The story of the kings is just this constant roller coaster of good, flawed, bad, ugly, all of it. And it's just a mess. And through all of that waiting, they did like we do. They got distracted, real distracted, badly distracted. At times, they did exactly what we were talking about in the, in the kids' thing. They started to doubt God and believe in idols and gods that they made with their own hands. Everything that from the time at Sinai with the golden calf and the time of Moses all the way up to the Babylonian gods and the Assyrian gods and the gods of other peoples, they just kept gravitating to a God that they could control because this God who, yes, keeps His promises, but this other God, this Jehovah God, this I Am, we can't manipulate Him. He doesn't always do it the way we want it to be done. He doesn't always do it when we want it to be done. We've been waiting too long. So they look for shortcuts, gods they can control and manipulate. So God sends to them, time after time, the prophets. He sends Elijah and Elisha. He sends Isaiah and Jeremiah. And He sends all of the what we call the minor prophets, which it's sad that we call them minor when all they did was write shorter books, right? I mean, let's face it, most of us would like them better. They should be the majors, right? But He sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call people back to the promise he will send one who will deliver you. He will send one who will save you. He will send one who will redeem you. He will send one who will right every wrong and crush the hand of the serpent and the accuser. He is going to make things right. Hold on. Hold on to the life He called you to. Hold on to the faith He called you to. Hold on to the righteousness that He has given you, the forgiveness that He offers you. And it was a constant back and forth. And half the Old Testament, at least, is just this constant back and forth of being called back to righteousness and getting distracted. Called back to righteousness and getting distracted. And then we end at the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, 400 years before the birth of Christ. And there's this period of silence. For a long time, they'd heard God calling them back. They had heard God giving them promises. They had heard all of these things. They'd seen incredible things. But then there's this period where it's just silent. We don't handle silence well all the time, do we? Want me to set a timer and we'll try? No, we don't want that, right? We don't like silence. But into the silence came Jesus. One day, down by the river, John the Baptist is talking about the One. He's talking about this promise back in the garden of one who would come, who would be the offspring who would crush Satan's head. And he calls on the people of God. He's calling them back one more time. He calls on the people of God to repent, to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. This was John's call. Because the one who was coming was just about to arrive. And right there in the middle of all of this, 
Jesus walks up. And the Spirit, in the form of a dove, descends on Him. And God speaks. Think about this. 400 years of silence. And then God speaks at this river that's like the Pecan Bayou. The most humble of places, right? He speaks and says, This is my Son. It's time, is what He's saying. I told you He would come through the line of David. Jesus' mother, Mary, was of the line of David. And Joseph was of the line of David. This is my son. Listen to him. That piqued some people's curiosity. Who is this guy? For the next three and a half years, he would teach and preach and live and serve. And we've been looking in the Gospel of John at all the things that he's been doing. He went to people that were outcasts and he told them, God loves you, God forgives you, God wants you to be a part of His kingdom. He goes to a woman at a well and says, I will give you living water. You never have to come here again. And it goes back to the same thing at the well that happened at the garden. He's correcting the gar- the, what happened at the garden. They hid in the bushes because of the shame of their sin. He goes to the woman at the well and says, it's time to stop hiding because she was there at the time of day to avoid the looks of the people who knew her sins. He says, you don't have to hide in the bushes anymore. You don't have to look at yourself in shame anymore. I do know everything about you and I'm calling you to the kingdom of God. He says it to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus followed. The Samaritan woman followed. Matthew, James, John, Peter followed. And one after another, people heard the call of grace and heard the call of love and heard the call of forgiveness and they followed. And that brings us back to where we were just a few minutes ago. There were people who had been determined to kill him. Why is he in town? If you know the history from Genesis to John 11, and you know that God is working through this man Jesus to keep a promise and that He has kept every promise. They're about to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is the celebration of the promises being fulfilled. That when He said we would be a people, we became a people. That when He said we would have a land, we had a land. When He said we would be a nation, we would have a nation. And the Passover looked forward to... And he said he would send the one who would crush Satan's head. And now they are preparing for the Passover. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem to crush Satan's head by becoming the Passover lamb, the one who would die for the sins of the world. In chapter 12, we're going to look at that next week. In chapter 12, they sit down to a dinner. And all of the weight of human history falls on this dinner. Everything from the moment of creation to the fall of man to the back and forth and the rise and fall of Israel and Judah, everything begins to culminate at this dinner. Jesus, Luke 9.51 says, had resolutely set His face for Jerusalem. That week had been planned in eternity. The moment of the cross had been planned before the beginning of time. All of this to reconcile God to man. And voices were coming from every direction, fueled by the serpent. It's time to give up. It's too dangerous there. You don't really want to go through that. This isn't really necessary. The temptation in Luke 4, remember, was, if you'll just bow before me, I'll give you a shortcut. I'll give you the king's loop. I'll give you all your people back. None of this is necessary, Satan says. Just let the Messiah bow to me. And Jesus resolutely then said no. And Jesus resolutely said on His way to Jerusalem, Yes, I will die for the sins of the world, rise for the life of the world, and nothing that comes up against me in that last week will stop me. He looked at you. He looked at you. 
And he said, there is nothing that stands in the way of my love for you. There is nothing, nothing that Satan and hell can throw at me that stands between me and you. So he went. So for the next several weeks, we're going to look at what he took because he loves you that much. Every week we offer this invitation, not because of tradition. We offer this invitation because if Jesus was willing to be that steadfast in his love for us, we want to be this steadfast in our love for you. Nothing would get between Jesus and you. If it is the day that you decide that nothing will get between you and Jesus, we offer an invitation that you can come, put him on in baptism. If you need to pray with one of our elders, you can come. We'll pray with you or you can pray with one of our elders at the back. But resolutely set your face for the kingdom of God and let nothing stand between the love that he has for you this morning as we stand and sing.